Good morning. You're all awake. You're ready to go, right? Uh, grab a Bible, an app, scroll, whatever. Uh, turn over to Psalm 149. Uh, and, and while they're heading there, let me just say from the start, this is kind of a weird song. Uh, I, I picked them out in the springtime, what we're going to be doing in the summer, and uh, and then I kind of get back to them as uh, each week comes up. And I found myself by Tuesday of this week thinking I should have assigned this to Sam as some being under the care of Presbytery assignment um, because it's weird. Uh, there, there's a reason, you know, that you're going to see Psalm 23 on the walls in people's houses, but we hardly ever, no, never see 149, the entirety of this psalm, posted on anyone's wall. Uh, and, and I'll say that it's weird because it turns into this psalm of, um, vengeance and, and punishment at the end, uh, but it's also weird because, while it's praising God, and, and there's an aspect of that, the entire focus is actually on the people of God and, and their response to a number of things, their participation in a number of things. Uh, and I'll tell you, so while it's, it's strange to us, right, when we first read it, um, there's nothing wrong with the psalm. It's good and it's right, and the Lord has put it in, our, in, the, in the Bible uh, on purpose, according to his own sovereign will and for our good. It is uh, just as much the word of God and just as important to us as Psalm 23. In fact, uh, we probably should have this on the walls of our house more often. I would be elated if I showed up at one of your houses and find this later on, right? And pretty hand-drawn kind of uh, decoration of some sort. But uh, let's read it. You can see for yourself, and, and then I'll do my best to help us understand uh, why it's not as weird as it sounds at first, and, and secondly, what it has to say to us on, on this side of the cross, on the other side of the cross, um, and, and the way it applies to our, our life in that regard. So follow along, Psalm 149, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of irons, to execute on them the judgments written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, please grant our hearts a desire to understand your word. And grant our minds the ability to understand your word. May we learn to sing a new song for you as you do new and great and wonderful things for your people and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the first way we begin to understand this psalm, and, and, and really it's an amazing uh, example and um, point that, that makes the idea that the, import, the, the context of anything is incredibly important. Right? And we don't just by mean by that, we mean uh, all the words of the psalm. That would be the first aspect of context, but also the context in which this psalm was written. And as we come to the psalm, I, I think what we tend to do is picture it uh, as corporate worship service like we're gathered to do this morning. And that's simply not the context of Psalm 149. Now, 
that doesn't mean that, that you shouldn't dance, that you shouldn't use a, a tambourine in worshiping the Lord, right? That's not what I'm trying as a Presbyterian to somehow wash away and, and, and get rid of here, right? Th those are, are seen in other places in the scripture, but it, it doesn't mean that Psalm 149 uh, it, it is to be used as a, a, a way to prescribe what we do in worship corporately. Uh, so with that sort of statement, I think it's probably a fair question right off the bat. If I were you, I'd be asking, well, how do you know that's not the context of the psalm? Is that just convenient because of the way we do worship? Uh, because if it's not corporate, if it's not temple worship, what in the world is the context here? Because uh, as Americans, when we look at the church, we have an understanding and we don't have a context for what this is. Um, so let me say this. The most likely context is Israel returning from some battle victoriously. And, and I say that, we, we can see that because uh, that's where this theme of, of singing a new song, that's where this theme of dancing, this, this idea of bringing out tambourines is, is seen in the narrative portions of the scripture often. Uh, let me give you a few examples. In, in Exodus 15, uh, God, uh, you might remember, this is right after they had been enslaved in Egypt, and God leads them across the Red Sea on dry land, and the water comes back and swallows up the Egyptian army, and all those people are destroyed, right? Moses is leading them. And, and after that, in, in, in uh, Exodus 15, Moses literally sings a new song. The lyrics are written out in, in, in Exodus 15 for us. Uh, and then in verse 15 of chapter 15, we read this. We read, His sister Miriam took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and, and dancing. That's the picture we have here in our, our psalm at the beginning as well. They are celebrating that God has delivered them, and they're doing it immediately upon learning this. It's almost, not almost, it is, the spontaneous response to the goodness of God in their life. And we even get the words here, right? That, that what Miriam and these women are singing, they sing, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It's this joyous song of what God had done to the Egyptians in the process of saving his people. Uh, let me give you one more short example. First uh, Samuel 18, God uh, gave Israel's army under the leadership of David. David, newly put into this position, uh, a great victory. And listen to what verse 6 there tells us about the army's return. It says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Psalm 140, uh, 149 has that sort of setting in mind. It's not temple of worship, not even corporate worship. But that doesn't mean that we throw it out. That doesn't mean it has no aspect or nothing to say uh, with the way that we actually do worship God. It's just to say it's not prescriptive uh, in the way that we do corporate worship. In, in other words, it doesn't mean we must dance in corporate worship. It doesn't mean we must use tambourines when we gather to worship the Lord. Uh, so then let's look at some of these specifics, and we'll come back to those, those issues there a little bit later as well. Uh, but let's look to see what God has to teach us here. Uh, again, like Psalm 135 last week, this, this entire psalm has these two bookends, right? And the bookends are that Hebrew word, hallelujah, which means, do you all know this yet? Anybody? You can say it all out. Praise the Lord. Thank you. That's the idea. And so it begins with praise the Lord. It ends with praise the Lord. And in the middle, there's all sorts of, of wonderful things. So 
<clears throat> we'll move on since we dealt with that so much last week. The, the next line then is this beautiful line. It says, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. If anything's going on your wall, it's probably this verse right here, right? Just remove all the context, put those on your wall. Um, what's happening here, though, is, is this is the idea here of, of singing this new song to God here uh, occurs in many places in the scripture, first of all. Uh, five other psalms mention it. It's, it's twice in the book of Revelation. Isaiah 40 uses this phrase, sing to a new song. And, and when you hear this, though, what you've got to understand is, is don't think the newest song you know, from Hillsong being dropped on Spotify or whatever. Uh, that, that's not the idea. It's not some produced kind of song like we know today. The idea here is the kind of song that just flows out of you spontaneously because of something wonderful, something you're excited about, something you're, you're joyful about. Um, so many examples. I'll, I'll give you a, a story. Um, I don't know. This is a weird story, sure. Anyway, so uh, Laura, my, my wife and I, our, our first kiss, this is the first kiss story, um, occurred outside her dorm room at Texas A&M. And her dorm's kind of up on a, a hill, as far as hills are concerned in Texas. Uh, and my friend Aaron was back in the car, kind of waiting down there, not sure what was going to happen. So anyway, afterwards, Laura goes into her, her dorm. And uh, once I was sure she wasn't watching me out the window or something, I, I just began to run down the hill, kind of uh, sound of music style, with my arms out. <laughs> singing some made-up song about, about this kiss. <laughs> uh, and it, it became so memorable to me, because I remember as I approached the car, I can see Aaron laughing in the car, and I kind of dived Dukes of Hazard style across the car in and, and just jubilation. Only I slid so far that I went like head over heels and just went rolling into the street off into the distance. <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll never forget getting in the car, and he's like, so I guess you're head over heels for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, but anyway, that, that song that I sang that night, I can't even tell you the lyrics of it today, but it's closer to the idea of what's happening here in the psalm. It's this, this overflow of joy that just comes out in spontaneous uh, gratitude and joy and excitement just flowing out. Uh, these are the things that, that come in our life, and I, uh, often I hope, I know, I know our, our children do this when they're celebrating sporting events, you know, after the Astros win the World Series, there, there's all sorts of victory songs that are made up, or even when they're winning something as silly as Gaga Ball, or some other quasi-sport, they have these, uh, um, and, and they come out all the time. I know our, our daughter, Sadie Piper, will even sing and dance every time pesto pasta is for dinner, it's her favorite meal. And it's like she can't help but dance when she finds out that's happening. Uh, these are the kind of spontaneous things that just bubble out in celebration. That's the idea here. And, and so I want you to understand that as a, as a context here. Um, only here, the, the focus of the song, it's not on sports and the silly things that we tend to get excited about. The, the focus is on what the Lord has done. And so there's this greater intensity, this greater joy, because the Lord has actually preserved their lives, which were in great danger. They're coming back from war. And they're celebrating that God has given this victory. And so the new song is just some new occasion, rather, to, to give God praise for what he's done for them, in this case, deliverance. And, and so understand, then, that the psalm here is jubilance, all of it, because we want to read the first part jubilant, and the second side maybe get a little more, more serious, right? The judgment, but even the judgment part is actually celebratory. 
At the heart, then, we're talking about true bursting at the seams, attitude of gratitude, praising of the Lord. And so, um, and this is where this comes into how we understand this. The best way for us to get to a place where we spontaneously sing a new song to the Lord, uh, even if it's just in your mind, right? You're not the type that's going to sing out loud. I know some of you, I can't picture doing sound of music thing, uh, and that's a good thing. But the idea here is that if we're going to sing a new song spontaneously, even silently in our mind, then, then we have to have a, a good focus on the goodness of God in our life. We've got to learn to develop what gratitude really is. Uh, Ligon Duncan once said, one of the enemies of praise is ingratitude. And he goes on to explain it. If, if we are not sufficiently grateful, thankful, kids, for who the Lord is, what he has done for us, our praise will be anemic and weak. Gratitude really shows fruit or, or pours out, grows into praise to the Lord. If we focus on God delivering us from sin, from guilt, from ourselves, from hell, from life without purpose, then we, we may just sing out in joy. Um, as, as a family, we... Uh, we used to end each day taking turns in, in, in prayer, just thanking the Lord for something, anything. Some of the things would be kind of ridiculous in, in, in view, but some of the things were, were amazing. It was just a, a way to have a heart of, uh, of gratitude. To be honest, in the summer, our life has gotten out of rhythm, and we've stopped doing that. But reading Psalm 149 this week has absolutely convinced me of the value of doing that. To, to at the end of the day, come back and say, what can I be thankful to the Lord today? What, what has he done in my life that I can turn to praise at this point? Um, I highly encourage every one of you, either alone in prayer or with others in prayer, to take time uh, and, and just figure out what do we have to be grateful for today. You know, you begin to think through even the smaller details. You woke up today. I'm sure every one of you woke up today. You might not be awake right now, but I'm sure earlier you woke up because you got here one way. We can be grateful that, they, that our eyes work, right? Even if you've got some health issues, how many days of your life did you fail to be thankful that that issue did not exist? You know, the, the idea that we can do so many things. I can control my arms with my brain. That's amazing. That's almost telekinesis, right? Um, with my brain. <laughs> That's amazing. And I've been able to do it for 40 years now. But if tomorrow I can't control one of my arms, why is that a reason that I'm suddenly bitter for the Lord? Right? Where is the gratitude and just the amazing, ordinary things in life? And I'm only saying this not to shame you. It shames me too, believe me. I'm saying it so that we begin to recognize it, so we might begin to nurture a heart of gratitude because I want to see us as the people of God pour out and praise to God, not just when we meet corporately, but every moment of our lives, right? Constantly. And so this singing here in our psalm, though, takes place in the assembly of the godly, it says. God's people are together. It's not proper corporate worship, but, uh, but they're together, and they're praising God with this gratitude. And, and, and honestly, I would love to hear from you all more often about what you're thankful for. You could probably stand to hear from me with things I'm thankful for. They're, they're, they're sharing this with others. They're sharing this to, to God together. Um, what it means when, you know, that's, that's the idea. When it says the assembly of the godly, you know, you understand that's God's people. 
Uh, that word godly there in our, our passage here is, a, is Hebrew. It's actually a, an adjective form uh, of the word that, that we've come to know so well as we work through the Psalms. That word hesed, you remember that? It means steadfast love, the covenant love of God. Um, but it's just, in, in this sense then, it, you know, it's, uh, it's often translated saints or faithful one or, or the godly as we see here. And the point here is that, and I'm telling you this because I don't want you to get confused here. When it says godly, it's not talking about these people having some holiness in and of themselves, but rather those who have understood and received God's steadfast love for them. Those are the godly. In our context, we mean simply your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those fellow sinners who are resting on the sacrifice of Christ for them. Um, verse 2, I promise it speeds up. It's not, this is not percentage-wise where we're at, verse 1, verse 2. Uh, in verse 2, we can see the singing praises to God. They are singing praises to God because he is our creator and because he is our king above all other gods, uh, all other kings, rather, simple enough. Verse 3 gives us a picture uh, the most likely at the gate of the city, they are dancing with tambourines. Uh, perhaps the greatest thing we can take away from this verse 3 is that we should worship the Lord with less apathy and more awe. Uh, we should worship and, and learn to be, uh, to be present, in the, you know, not just merely present in worship, but to be participating with all of our hearts when we come to worship. We need to, to learn to, to worship with more passion, more zeal, uh, more emotion. Don't make major life decisions on emotion. But yes, bring your emotions to, to worship the Lord. Sometimes the emotion can be sadness. Other times maybe relief of some sort. Other times just overflowing with joy at the grace of God. But we need to be physically, mentally, and emotionally present when we come to worship the Lord. What, what this looks like might be different for different people. And I say that I don't want you to get some idea. If you go home and you Google the word worship and Google images, every picture you'll see where people with their hands up. That, that's become kind of our, our cultural idea of what it is. And, and that's just one way it might look. It's going to be different for everyone. I'll, I'll never forget. I might have shared this story before, but uh, I was in Mexicali, Mexico on a mission trip when their soccer team won something of significance. And we're driving down the road in the city and suddenly, out of the bars and houses, just poor people, and they start running in some direction towards the city center, uh, and we have no idea. People start getting out of their cars and abandoning their cars to run. Uh, again, we have no idea, except for flags and stuff everywhere, shocker jerseys. We decide, let's just get out and run with them, see where we're going. Um, hopefully, there's not a cliff at the end, something like that. Uh, and they were just absolutely rejoicing. And it was amazing to us because we'd never seen people respond this way. That was uh, their joy, and it was absolutely legit. Uh, that's the kind of joy we recognize easily. Now, if you've ever watched Wimbledon, uh, the tennis championships in, in England, you, you might know that they, they celebrate a little differently. Uh, the winning thing happens. Everyone stands up. They clap. Uh, and they're smiling. And, and it's easy to look at it and be like, they don't know how to celebrate. They don't know how to rejoice. But if you look at their smile, as you can see, most of them, at least, are, are actually elated with this victory. That is a way of actually expressing it. And so I, I say this because I want you to understand, you might be the type who, who wants to raise your hands and, and singing praise to the Lord. Feel free to do so here. Um, don't be afraid if other people aren't. You, know, you, you also might be the type that never would. That makes you uncomfortable. It's weird. It's not the way you express your, 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 your praise. That's great, too. And I want you to understand this, that, that, that neither way is greater nor lesser 
than the person next to you doing it differently. It doesn't mean that you're worshiping God less if you don't. It doesn't mean that you're worshiping God less if you do, or more if you do. So, so just kind of understand that. The, the Lord desires our hearts, and that's what I'm getting at. Uh, I'll say this. When I first began attending a liturgical service uh, like our own, one with responsive readings and prayers and confessions and hymns and uh, songs that were spread throughout the service rather than the four concert-like ones at the beginning, um, I can remember talking to Laura, and, and I would blame my lack of emotion in, in the worship on style. I'd say, that's just not my style, right? Um, as if that were really the thing. You know, something like, uh, uh, you know, I was used to someone on stage, honestly, who would be zealous for me who would pull me into this. They would work up my emotions through music and a, a number of other ways, and I was just quick to blame the church on, on my heart issues. I, and I don't say that to shame any other style, but what I learned over time was that I was coming to church unprepared. My, my heart was cold. I was going through the motions. Uh, I was showing up uh, and blaming someone else because I wasn't emotionally involved in the worship. And, and, and I tell you this, you know, don't forget, when we enter into the worship of the Lord, we're, we're not coming as movie critics. No one should start a podcast reviewing their worship service, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> we're coming to worship the Lord. Don't, don't come critiquing. Come ready to worship. Like, you are responsible in this way, right? Don't, don't, don't pull too much in this, but you're responsible to come prepared, ready to worship the Lord. It will change the way you do it, especially when you're on vacation, when you find yourself in an environment that you're not used to. You're not there to critique it. You're not going to make any difference in the way they do it anyway. Uh, but come, ready to worship the Lord. So, all right, so finally, dancing is a way that you can praise God. Uh, Scripture says so. It's absolutely in Scripture. I don't know why some of our people in history were so afraid of dancing that it's got this, this name in the church that's, that's so shameful in some regards. But I hope you do spontaneously dance. Some of the best memories in our home is just dancing. Uh, and some of that time it should be simply because the, the Lord has redeemed you. You know, Everything else in life might be miserable, but you know what? The Lord has redeemed me. Just dance like Snoopy, like anything. Um, do so. So then in verse 4 we read, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Uh, one of the reasons that we sing is because God takes pleasure in his people. God takes uh, pleasure in his people, similar to the way that a parent takes pleasure in their children. Um, watching them sing or play or be kind to others or one another. Uh, these kind of things are, are easy to understand as a parent. I think it was difficult before I was a parent to make sense out of this. Uh, some of you probably have people in your life that would fit in that same category like children, though, that you just find I, I, I take pleasure in, in seeing them and their joy. That's a very pale comparison, but it does give us an idea of how God takes pleasure in us. Certainly when we honor him, when we desire to obey him, when we seek him as our refuge and our hope, when we, when we go to him for grace because uh, we have just messed up royally, um, but also when we laugh with friends. The Lord takes pleasure in his people doing that. When we look in awe at a sunset, when we, when we change a nasty diaper, you don't take any pleasure in that. But, but that's the kind of thing the Lord takes pleasure, to see you caring for, for a child in that way. When we visit a friend in a hospital, any of the things that we're, what we're doing, these things are things the Lord takes pleasure in. Um, some of you that are older, you might remember that scene in Chariots of Fire 
Some of you are younger are saying, what is chariots of fire? Just forget you. Come back in a minute. Uh, <laughs> Eric Liddell, in, in that story, he is a, uh, a track star who is amazing at the time. There's a lot more story to it. But he's explaining to his sister in this one scene the reason why he hasn't gone to China and been a missionary immediately, why he's going to the Olympics and he's running in these, in these competitions. Uh, and he says to her, I believe God made me for a purpose, for China. He understands that. He continues, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. He understood that even his, his running, his competing in this regard, was something that could be done for, for the pleasure of the Lord, that delighted in him. He, he understood that this running was a gift of God, and he also understood that God simply loves him. Do you understand that God simply loves you as his child? You ever ask yourself that, that doubting question in some moment? Does, does God really love me? And, and it's more significant how you answer that question, right? Not just yes or no, but, but what are the things that go through your filter as you begin to ask that question? Because does God love me? Okay, can, I, can I tell you as, as, as a Christian how you ought to answer that question, how our minds ought to think? You, you, you should look to one place. To, to one place that trumps everything else in the world. Everything, you know, it trumps relationship issues, it trumps sickness and medical issues, the one place that is greater than any other. You, you look to the cross to answer that question. I know that, that might sound cliche in some regard, but it's absolutely true. That's where we find the answer to the question, does God really love me? And we look to the cross, and what we see on the cross or at the cross is what God gave, uh, gave upon the cross in order that he might redeem you from your sin. In order that he might make you his child, his family, his treasured possession. That's the answer always. Does the Lord love you, really love you absolutely because of what he's done on the cross for you? Uh, let's keep moving. Verse 5, this is the first place the psalm gets a little weird. Uh, it says, Let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Uh, if you need another reason to know this is not corporate worship, uh, there it is. They're worshiping in their beds, right? Uh, every time I talk to, to some Christian who insists that tambourines, you wouldn't know this, right? But there's actually people that think tambourines are necessary in the worship service, and they, they take it from a psalm like this and a few other places. Uh, but every time I always point to one of these examples, like, but, but do you bring your bed to worship? <laughs> um, and, of course, no one really does. But, I, I, you know, I, why not, though, right? Uh, and I know some of you are thinking, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> I could sleep through this sermon so much easier if I could do it. Uh, right? This, this is the proof text for skipping worship so you can attend Bedside Baptist. Uh, no, that's not it at all. Uh, so, again, consider the context here. They're returning from a battle victorious, a battle that the Lord has actually won for them, given them deliverance from, uh, and they can sing for joy in their beds, from their beds, because they are alive. They've been out into a field for a long time. They've been sleeping on the ground in strange places, but the Lord has delivered them so that they can actually sleep in their own bed uh, instead of a battlefield. That's what God has done for them. That's the idea there. <clears throat> Uh, the rest of the psalm is where it really gets strange to us. Uh, again, listen to this. And this is all jubilation, which makes it even weirder, right? Uh, Let the high praises of God be in their throats and the two-edged sword in their hands, 
to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of irons, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all of his godly ones. A, a two-edged sword in their hand. Again, not corporate worship, right? Um, but again, on, on this one, I can honestly say I have actually brought a two-edged sword to worship before here. Uh, you might remember in Ephesians chapter 6 when we were uh, talking about the, uh, the sword of the Spirit. I, I had Sting from Lord of the Rings here, which is a two-edged sword. Um, to, to illustrate, that was the idea. That was the only reason I brought it. I, you, you might remember I didn't execute any vengeance with it. Uh, it was just an illustration. <clears throat> but verse 6 here then is, is this hinge verse in the psalm. That, there's this praise in their thro- throats. Uh, that's a strong emotional praise for God. But the, the sword in their hands, this is looking forward. It's, uh, it's looking forward to their taking part in the execution um, executing judgment, rather, which is going to be an execution on the enemies of God. That's unexpected, right? Um, especially since multiple times in the scriptures we, we read that the Lord says that we are not to uh, take our own vengeance, that the Lord will do so himself. We're not to avenge ourselves, and, and we're not. You know, that's absolutely true. What we're seeing here uh, is a picture of God executing vengeance through his people. God gives the directive like God did when he sent the people into Canaan. And the purpose of their fighting that that battle was not just so they could get the land from the people, but to carry out uh, a sentence of God's God's judgment on those people. The very fact that it's called vengeance here tells us that the nations have done something to God or to his people to begin with. Uh, Admittedly, this is all incredibly hard for us to understand all of it, Partially or mostly because the, despite some people's view, the United States is not collectively God's chosen people. We are, uh, we are not the nation of, of God's people. The church is God's people. There are Americans who are, but as a nation, that's not true. Uh, it's further confusing because as, as the church, we are never to wage uh, a physical war of physical weapons. And in verse 9, it becomes very clear that not only will God one day judge the nations and all people, but at least some of it will be done through or by his people, somehow we're going to take part in God's just judgments of those who have rejected him and those who have acted against him. Does that make anybody else a little uncomfortable? You know, you come to these places in the scripture and I think, I, I don't like it, if I'm honest. That feels weird. Um, but that's what it is. That's the way the, the Lord has showing it to his people. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, uh, we see this again. Paul is trying to encourage Christians in that time to, uh, to make judgment. These people will have disputes, and they were having trouble helping them sort this out, so the people were going elsewhere to get these judgments made. Uh, and in order to encourage them to make these little judgments between two people, he, he points forward to an even greater judgment that they're going to have to take part on. He says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? bit of a mystery, and by a bit, I mean a whole lot of a mystery there, uh, and, and that's okay. We, we just understand that the Lord's going to call us to part of that. One of the things we see in the psalm, though, is that that's a place of honor. It's not some horrible responsibility. It's an honor the Lord does that. Now, I, I want to show you <clears throat> how we make sense of this as God's redeemed people. In, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, the, the, the chief priest and the others uh, came to arrest Jesus, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and, and Peter, that zealous disciple that is, uh, 
I love him. I hope you do too. He, he pulls out his sword to protect him and in the process ends up cutting off the ear of one of the, uh, the soldiers who were coming to arrest him. And, and Jesus responds by telling Peter, put your sword back into its place. In other words, this is, this is not how we're going to do this. Uh, you don't need that sword. And while we as Christians are to battle and have a battle mindset, we're not to do so with swords or modern weapons. Now, I don't mean in regards to military or protecting your family. I mean in regards to conquering the enemies of God. And here's why we believe this. Because God teaches us in Ephesians 6.12, saying we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay? but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You, you understand this? A, a physical weapon is of absolutely no use for the battle that we're being called to here because it's a spiritual battle. Then a, a few verses later there in Ephesians 5, uh, verse 17, we, we're taught this, that the sword that we need is the sword of the Spirit, then it's defined for us, which is the word of God. And then you, you add to this, that verse in Revelation 12, 11, uh, the last book of the Bible. You can turn there if you want. Uh, Revelation 12, 11. Uh, and if you're looking, you already know the answer to these questions. But have God's people conquered with swords? No. Have God's people conquered with bombs and tanks and guns and planes and helicopters? No. Have they conquered with, you know, amazing government legislation? No. If you listen to this, Revelation 12, 11, it tells us God's people have conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The evil one has been conquered. Sin has been conquered by the blood of the lamb. You see, the, the good news of the gospel, the gospel has both good and bad news. We, we tend to make all of our focus on the good. But the good news of the gospel is that you are going to pass the judgment of God because of what Jesus has done for you by the blood of the Lamb, the sacrifice of Christ for you. That's his love for you. The other half of that, the bad news of the gospel, is that there is a very harsh judgment of God on all those who have rejected him, all those who have continued to sin without finding salvation in Christ. Uh, the call of this psalm to us, then, is to believe on the Lord Jesus, or as Sinclair Ferguson has worded so well, uh, you've probably heard this many times by now, but it, it's written so well that I, I use it often. He says, there is a living Savior who, because he died and rose again, is sufficient to save you. And indeed, each and every person who comes to him in faith, there is fullness of grace in Christ crucified, and you too may find salvation in his name. If your faith is already in the Lord, let me encourage you to, to come to a psalm like this and learn to, to sing a new song. To use your eyes and everything and all your abilities to see what God has done for you and to respond with a new song of praise to the Lord, whether it be an actual song or not, a, a, a new aspect of praise to Him. For everything, big and small, all the, the good things that our triune God does for us. And if you need a reason to sing today, remember that one day we are going to gather together with the saints, not only saints alive right now, but the saints from all of history um, to sing a new song. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, uh, we get a preview of this. There in verses 9 and 10, we read this. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. That's the new song we sing because of all that Christ has done for us in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand that grace through the gospel and also judgment on those who reject you, both are true justice. And thus both are glorifying to your name. Even in our sadness, teach us to, to see how that is glorifying to you who are holy. T- teach our hearts to rejoice often, Lord, to sing a new song for each new grace that we receive at your hands. Teach us to praise you, Lord, with our whole hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.